Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class all semester. We are talking about uh, what is called practical theology, or as we're calling it, applied theology. Don't let that uh, name mislead you or fool you. All theology is practical, and there is applications for all theology, but we're really trying to dive down this semester into more of uh, how uh, specifically we can apply theology and how we can uh, seek to know this God who has called us to himself, how to pursue being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what discipleship is all about, is being conformed to the image of Christ. So a disciple is a learner. That's what a disciple is. And so discipleship is ultimately about being fashioned into the image of a teacher. To some degree, we are to be discipled by other men and by other women, but ultimately discipleship is about growing into the image of the ultimate teacher who is Christ. He's the ultimate rabbi. As Paul says, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. That's what discipleship entails. It's imitation. So find men, find women who stir your affections for Christ in particular ways, and then spend intentional time with them. That's what discipleship uh, involves. It doesn't have to be some sort of a Navy SEAL, you know, BUDS training program. A lot of the time, discipleship is simply uh, taking place over coffee and dinner and vacations and so forth. And in a lot of the, the lessons that we're going to be talking about this semester, they're, they're going to be in no particular order. We just kind of had to put them in that order so that uh, none of us are doing double duty and teaching and preaching on the same day. But the first few weeks are really intentional, and we want you to see that, uh, that there is this intention that we start out with prayer and with Scripture because that's the foundation of everything. Everything else that we're going to talk about related to discipleship flows out of those two streams, prayer and, uh, and Scripture. And as we're talking about discipleship really all semester, we need to also talk about disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And, uh, and so it's really important that we think rightly about this particular subject, the, the subject of spiritual disciplines as it relates to discipleship, because one way of thinking about spiritual disciplines leads you to flourishing. Uh, one way leads you to joy, and the other way leads you to unhappiness, and it leads you to shame, and, uh, and so forth. So I want you to imagine this scenario. I want you to imagine that you come home from work or wherever, running errands, and you check the mailbox, and inside that mailbox is some sort of official letter. It's a letter that's addressed to you, uh, and to your spouse, and it's not just the normal spam that we all get, right? It's, just, it's a real important sort of governmental uh, letter. So you open the letter, and it's a summons to jury duty. Or maybe it's a summons to appear at the next HOA meeting to defend yourself against some sort of dispute, right? You're going to be sued uh, by your neighbor if you don't. So how are you feeling in that moment when you open that letter? You're probably feeling frustrated, you're angry, you're inconvenienced, you might be confused, whatever it might be. Now let's change the illustration a bit. You still go home, you open the mail, there is an invitation, it's an official invitation, but that is an invitation to the governor's ball in Austin. Or it's to an all-expense-paid trip to England, right? The queen has somehow heard about you, and she wants to spend the weekend with you at Buckingham Palace, right? Or if that doesn't do it for you, it's an invitation to spend a weekend with Bono and you two, or whatever it is, fill in the blank. Whoever it was, it would be, that would be uh, very exciting for you. I was going to use the president, but some people probably wouldn't like that. So whoever it is for you, that would be really exciting. Imagine that. Now how do you feel when you open that? You feel excited. You feel encouraged. You feel happy. 
right? The reason I mention those two images is because I think those two images correspond to the two different ways you can think about spiritual disciplines. In one way, through one lens, spiritual disciplines are these obligations. They're these summons from a higher authority to do something that you really don't want to do, and there's some sort of penalty for disobedience. That's one way you can think about the spiritual disciplines. Another way that you could think about them is as, as these invitations, not just a command, not just a summons, but an invitation from a higher authority to experience joy. Right? And that changes everything. Spiritual disciplines aren't just about these lists of rules. They're invitations for you to flourish. They're invitations for you to experience joy. And unless you really grasp that distinction, unless you really grasp the real meaning of spiritual disciplines, then your pursuit of God, your pursuit of spiritual disciplines and so forth is always going to be marked by frustration, by inconvenience, by disinterest, or whatever it might be. But if you can somehow, by God's grace, if you can orient your mind to think of things like reading and prayer and fasting and so forth, all these things that we're going to be talking about all semester, if you can orient your mind to think of those things as opportunities, as invitations to joy and flourishing, it will profoundly change the way you relate to the discipline. So today, we want to talk about two of the most important, in my mind, disciplines, that is reading and memorizing scripture, which are really two of the three main ways of, uh, of engaging the Bible. The other being studying, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. So we're going to do an entire section on studying the Bible. So today we're just talking about reading and, uh, and, uh, uh, and meditating So you have, uh, or memorizing. So you have reading, you have memorizing, you have studying. Which should you do of those three? The answer is all of the above. All right? You should do all three. I think a healthy discipline for every Christian would be to figure out some rhythm whereby they can devote themselves to regularly. Notice I didn't necessarily say daily. You don't have to daily do all three of these, but regularly reading, memorizing, and studying Scripture. There is no law. There is no command. There is no text that says thou must study every day or thou shalt read the entire Bible in a year. But there should be some sort, uh, there should be some means of habitually pursuing each of these three approaches. And, and I mean habitually because a lot of discipleship is simply forming good formative habits. A lot of discipleship is just good habits. All right, habits aren't the enemy of your sanctification, they're not the enemy of your discipleship. As Michael Horton says, character is largely a bundle of habits. Our habits not only reveal our hearts, but in a sense they help shape our hearts as well. Good habits are really helpful in forming good character, whereas bad habits, are, they provide this fertile soil for sin. For example, think of this. When I get up early in the morning and I read, yes, that provides an opportunity of being in the Word and engaging God in the Word, but it also, just the act of reading builds in me other virtues. It builds in me consistency if I do it every day. It builds in me self-denial because I wake up early. It builds in me this idea of faithfulness or reliability. In other words, it, it isn't only the content of what you're reading that's beneficial. Yes, that's beneficial. That's the most important thing. But it's not the only thing. The process itself is actually beneficial for you. It's formative 
as you discipline yourself. So I commend to you all three of these habits or disciplines of reading, memorizing, and studying Scripture. We'll talk about memorizing shortly. Uh, for now, let's talk about the difference between reading and studying Scripture. I want you to imagine another scenario, these, this contrasted scenario. Imagine a marriage whereby a couple spends a whole lot of time together. They're just uh, together all the time, but they never really talk. They're kind of just like roommates, right? They never really engage in physical intimacy either. Would you say that's a healthy marriage? No. Some of you are like, I don't know. Yeah, that's not a healthy marriage. All right, now let's imagine another scenario. Imagine a scenario where a couple has really frequent uh, date nights. They have really deep conversation. They're regularly uh, intimate. But they've just decided for whatever reason they're not going to live in the same house together. They're not going to see each other. They're not going to talk to each other except on those weekly date nights or whatever. Not because he's a soldier overseas or he has to travel a lot for work or something. Just because they prefer to live apart. Is that a healthy marriage? Also no, right? Neither marriage is going to be healthy. In the first, they have quantity of time, but they don't have quality time. In the second, there's quality, but there's not quantity. But a healthy marriage is going to need both. <coughs> and the same is true when it comes to engaging Scripture. You might think of reading Scripture uh, as a discipline, as, uh, as quantity of time, whereas studying is more like quality time. Reading is more horizontal. The goal is being uh, to work through uh, uh, larger portions of Scripture. Studying, on the other hand, is more vertical. It's going to involve digging into the context and the grammar and working slowly through the details of smaller portions of Scripture. So we're going to talk about studying in particular in a couple of weeks. Today we just want to focus on the discipline of reading. All Christians, everyone in this room probably errs somewhere in one of those two directions. Some just read, but they never really study, and that's not healthy. Others just study, but they never really read, and that's not healthy either. If you just read and you never study, you probably know a lot of trivia about the Bible, but you don't really know the Bible. You don't really know a lot of theological, you don't have a good theological grid for interpreting Scripture. But on the other hand, if you study, you don't read. That's kind of like claiming to be a huge Star Wars fan. But you've only watched episode four. Right? You, you have all kinds of theories because you've watched episode four so many times. You have all kinds of theories about how Vader killed Luke's father. What's the problem with that? You haven't watched Empire Strikes Back where you find out what? Spoiler alert. Vader is Luke's father, Right? So studying small sections of Scripture is really important, but so is reading larger sections. I think there should be a habit of you regularly doing both. So why should you read the Bible? Well, this semester we're, we're not talking about bibliology proper. That's the doctrine of Scripture. We've done that in previous years. You can go back and listen to that. We've talked about the inspiration, the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the perspicuity which is ironically the clarity of Scripture. It's ironic because no one knows what perspicuity means. Uh, we, we've talked about all of those things, but this semester we're trying to be more explicitly practical. Again, all of those things are actually practical if you understand them, but we're trying to be more explicitly practical. That said, we need to bear in mind that the why and the how we should study Scripture flows out of understanding what Scripture is. In other words, if you want to know why you should read the Bible... You need to know what the Bible is. The imperative, that's the command, that's the action of reading, flows out of the indicative. 
That is what Scripture is. Why you should read depends on what it is. Last year, I made it a goal to read some literary classics that my public education had neglected. So, for, for example, I read Of Mice and Men for the first time, and I read To Kill a Mockingbird for the first time, and I read The Hobbit for the first time. Why did I do that? Because they're classics. They've had a rather formative impact on culture. In fact, as I read them for the first time, one of the things that I noticed was, even though I'd never read them, I'd never seen any of the movies uh, about them or anything like that, I already knew a lot about them simply because they're a part of our cultural framework. But when it comes to the Bible, the reason that we read it isn't because it's a classic, although it is. It isn't because it's the best-selling book in human history, although that's true as well. It isn't just because the Bible has shaped our culture, though it certainly has. It isn't because it's just a, a real page-turner, though it is, except in certain parts of Numbers or Leviticus or something. The reason that we read the Bible isn't because of those things. The reason we read the Bible is because it's the inerred, uh, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Because in, in it, we learn about the nature and character of God, the nature of the gospel. We, uh, we learn about ourselves. We learn about salvation and so forth. So the why flows out of the what. So with that in mind, why should you read the Bible? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one is because God commands it. Now, as we talk about, uh, as we talk about this, remember God's commands are for our joy. It's an invitation, not just a, a summons to jury duty or something like that. It's an invitation to flourish. It's an invitation to commune with God himself. And interestingly enough, there is no explicit text that says, thou shalt read the Bible. That's really interesting. But there are texts that says that we should meditate on it, that we should teach it, we should delight in it, etc. And there's no way to actually do those things unless we actually read it. It's impossible to carry out these other commands. So it's not an explicit command, thou shalt read the Bible, but it's certainly implied by all of the other things it says that you're to do with the Bible. For example, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How can you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly if you don't read the word. Or Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Or 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to, uh, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Or Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might, and these words that I command you today, listen to this, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So the first reason you should read scripture is because God commands it and he commands it for your joy, which relates to the second one. The second reason is because it's an invitation to flourishing. Read Joshua 1.8 again. We'll keep reading past where we read last time. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, it, uh, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Notice this. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Notice the language of blessing there. Notice the language of prosperity. That word's been certainly corrupted by the false gospel of the prosperity gospel. All right, this is not a contract. It's not saying if you read it, God will necessarily bless you. Rather, it's a recognition that reading it's, uh, itself is grace. 
The word itself is grace. Engaging God in his word is itself a reward. Do you think of scripture like that? Do you think of the act of reading itself as being a reward? Or is that just a means to some other sort of end? Or Psalm 1, 1 through 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The word goes on to say that he's like a tree planted by the water who bears fruit. Again, this is wisdom literature. This isn't some sort of promise. God isn't saying if you read scripture, nothing bad is going to happen to you. You're never going to be dry. You're always going to flourish or something. But there is this general principle in wisdom literature of flourishing and joy that accompanies reading scripture, meditating on scripture, loving scripture. When you read, what you're doing is you're posturing yourself in a position to receive grace. We know that God's grace, the means of God's grace to us is through his word. And so when we sit under his word, we are posturing ourselves in a place where there is the greatest chance of us receiving grace. And last week we talked about prayer. And we talked about prayer as being a, a Christian's breathing out. We breathe out our hopes, our desires, our frustrations, and so forth. Well, reading scripture or Studying scripture or memorizing scripture is kind of breathing in. You ever try to breathe out without breathing in? You can't do it. There's an order there. You have to breathe in before you have anything to breathe out. So you need this regular intake of biblical truth if you're going to breathe out prayer, if you're going to breathe out obedience. So that's the second reason to read scripture. It's an invitation to your flourishing. A third reason is because reading Scripture isn't just informative, it's also transformative. It's what trains us in righteousness. It's what equips us for good works. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's what keeps us from sin. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not hide, uh, sorry, that I might not sin against you. It's what renews our minds. It's what helps us discern the will of God. All right, Romans 12, starting in verse 2 there. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the Bible is unlike any other literature. Not only in that it's inspired, yes, that, that makes it unique, but it's also unique in that it is living and active. When you read an article, you look up, you Google search how to change the oil in your car or something like that. As you're reading that article, nothing is actually happening to the oil or to your car in that moment. You're just reading. Your oil isn't being changed as you're reading the article. But when you read Scripture, you're actually being transformed mysteriously, slowly, and progressively. If you're regenerate, if the Spirit of God abides in you, then as you're reading, something is actually happening to you. That's the nature of Scripture. It doesn't just inform us. It transforms us. That's what's called the efficacy of Scripture. We see it in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
Or as the great uh, uh, theologian Herman Bovink said, Scripture is spoken in the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore always effective, continually sustained, preserved, and made powerful by that Spirit. In other words, the efficacy of Scripture is a reminder of the sovereignty of God, of the providence of God, that when God speaks, his will is accomplished. Think back to the story of creation. Think back to the book of Genesis, right? God says, let there be light. And what happens? Is there a committee that's formed to discuss the potential benefits of illumination? No. Is there a long debate with darkness? The light and the darkness kind of get back and forth. Do the angels all gather together and take a vote? The big guys lost it. There shouldn't be light. Is that what happens? No. His speech effectually creates light. He says, let there be light and there is light. And that same thing happens to us on a more micro scale when we read Scripture. Somehow, mysteriously, graciously, sovereignly, providentially, God works in us that which he desires for us. There's no one in this room right now who seriously doubts that reading the Bible is a good thing. There's no one who says, I don't think you should read the Bible at all. So I don't have to convince you that you should read your Bible. And yet I do think that many of us don't read it or don't read it nearly as often as we'd like or as we should. I imagine some of you might have even made a resolution this past year to read your Bible more. So if it's so theologically obvious to us that we should read, why is it so practically difficult For so many of us. So let's talk about the challenges to reading the Bible. I'm going to mention just a few. This certainly isn't exhaustive, but I think that uh, all of the challenges boil down to a combination of these. The first one being our enemy despises the Word of God. By enemy, I don't just mean Satan, although I do mean Satan, but I also mean our flesh and just the principle of sin. I think this is the ultimate reason why you don't read the Bible. At the end of the day, the ultimate reason why you don't read the Bible is because of just sin generically, all right? In other words, all of the other reasons flow out of this one primary reason. What is the very first thing that we see Satan do in Genesis? He questions the word of God. He arrives on the scene, and the first thing he does is, does God really say? And then what? He says, well, is that really good? Is God really out for your good and flourishing? All sin boils down to those questions. Did God actually say? And whether or not what he said was actually good. All right. Whether it's by suggesting that reading scripture is boring or irrelevant or archaic or unimportant or less important or whatever it might be, sin's goal is the same to keep you from hearing and from treasuring or enjoying the Word of God. So that's the first reason we don't read it, is because there's this cosmic thing that's happening. There's this uh, homarteological, that's the doctrine of sin, thing that's happening. The second reason is because oftentimes we're apathetic. Some of us simply don't treasure it. We haven't developed a taste for it. We don't hate it, but we also don't love it. We're indifferent. And if you're indifferent to something, it naturally gets squeezed out of our routine because we tend to prioritize the things we enjoy more, whether that's sleep or work or television or exercise or whatever it might be. And this particular challenge is perhaps the hardest to overcome. Why is that? Because by definition, if you're apathetic, you don't care, right? If you're apathetic, 
about reading scripture, you're probably also apathetic about your apathy. So if that's you this morning, let me just give you this confer- uh, con- uh, encouragement. Confess. Admit that. Repent. I've heard people say before that it's hypocrisy to do something with the wrong heart and the wrong motivation. So if you don't feel like reading, you shouldn't read. Let me tell you, that's absolutely horrible advice. It is true that God delights not just in obedience, but joyful uh, obedience. It's true that God is not most honored by begrudging obedience. But do you know what's worse than begrudging obedience? Disobedience. Right? In other words, don't compound one sin with another sin. Don't compound the sin of indifference to reading. And it is a sin to be indifferent to reading Scripture. Don't compound that one sin of indifference to reading with the sin of not reading. Two wrongs don't make a right. That's like saying, I don't, I don't really delight in being faithful to my wife. And since I can't be joyfully faithful, I might as well have an affair. You see how absurd that is? Well, that's the exact same thing as saying, I don't enjoy reading, so I'm not going to read. So if you don't delight in the discipline, my response to you, I think the proper response is not that you would feed that feeling or lack thereof, but rather that you would mortify it. For you to admit, to, to acknowledge that your feelings are broken and to cry out, God, help me. My heart is broken. I don't desire the things I should desire. I don't delight in the things I should delight in. So my encouragement to you is to confess that you're apathetic, to ask God to help you, and then to just start reading, trusting that the feelings will come in time. If reading Scripture is what transforms us, the way for you to create, not that you're creating it, the way for the Spirit to create in you that delight is through you disciplining yourself to be in His Word day after day. That's the second reason that we're apathetic. Related to that, a third reason is that we're slothful. Now, when you hear the word sloth, you probably you think of maybe that creature, kind of looks like a monkey that's slow, or you think of the word lazy, all right? But that's not actually accurate. Sloth sometimes looks like laziness, but oftentimes slothful people look really productive. In fact, some of the most productive people I know I think the Bible would describe as slothful. Historically, sloth was connected to what we just talked about, which is apathy. The slothful man or woman, according to the Bible, might be extremely busy. Slothful doesn't always mean lazy. It just means that they're busy doing the wrong things. For example, you might be working 100 hours a week, and yet you absolutely fit the biblical depiction of sloth because you're neglecting other things that are absolutely essential and important. You're working really hard at your office, but you're neglecting your family, or you're neglecting church, or you're neglecting the pursuit of God. I wouldn't describe you as lazy. You're working hard, but I would say you're manifesting sloth in the biblical sense. It's like me in college. I think I've used this example before. I was never more productive in all of my college years. I was a really, I was a good seminary student. I was a bad college student, probably because I wasn't regenerate. But uh, I was never more productive in college than during semester finals. But what was I actually producing? What was I busy with? I wasn't studying. That was when I would decide I should deep clean my apartment. Or that was when I would decide I should throw a big party so that everyone else can rest. So I'm going to spend all my time planning this party. I was busy. I was just busy with things that are actually less important than what I should be doing. 
So one of the challenges to reading is a lack of prioritization of it. And you can see how all of these are beginning to flow together. The enemy wants you to be apathetic, and in your apathy, you don't prioritize it. You're slothful, and so you neglect it. A fourth reason that we don't read, a challenge to reading, is that we don't know how to read. We don't know what we're reading. Right? That is, that we are ignorant of, uh, of Scripture. Many of us have started reading the Bible a dozen times, only to trail off somewhere around Leviticus or maybe Numbers because of boredom or simply because you don't understand. This then creates this sort of perfect loop. You don't read because you don't understand. You don't understand because you don't read. So again, my encouragement to you is just keep on going. Things will get clearer. Eventually, as you read, the more you read, things will get clearer. And if not, then my encouragement to you is to reach out to someone for help. Reach out to a community group leader. You can reach out to one of our deacons or elders or staff members or whatever it might be, a friend. We'd love to get you some resources, but more than that, I think the biggest solution to this problem is just to kind of embrace the questions for a season and to just keep reading. Oftentimes, the answers are going to come. It's kind of like you're watching a movie with a kid, and they're asking you all these questions, and you know because you've seen enough movies, you know if you will just keep watching for 30 more seconds, they're probably going to answer the question that you're asking. That's the same way with reading Scripture. A lot of the questions that you have as you're in Leviticus or Numbers or wherever it might be, if you'll just keep reading, eventually those answers will come. A fifth challenge to reading is that we live in a changing culture, and there's a lot of obstacles in the way of reading. The sheer realities of life today make reading more difficult. For instance, there's a handful of books that have been written over the past decade that address how technology is actually changing how we think, not just what we think, but how we think. Our, our brains are actually rewired by things like social media and the Internet. As a result, our attention span is no longer what it once was. You know, If you're a boomer and you think millennials just don't have an attention span, that's maybe partly their fault, but it's also just a cultural sort of phenomenon that we see. We grow up reading books, many of us. But also, some of us can barely tolerate now a couple of hundred characters on Twitter. Literally, how we think and how we learn is changing. That's why a lot of churches today have decided they're going to have 15 to 20-minute sermons. They kind of want to lower the bar to the people versus raising the people to get over the bar. So this is a challenge for all of us. I read the Bible. I read books every single day. And yet, I too feel my attention span diminish. I used to be able to watch a movie. I never thought about picking up a phone, all right, because back then you didn't have phones to pick up. Now I'm watching a movie, and I might get bored, and I pick up my phone, and I check what's on the news or something. But I also know that I can't give in to that urge. I know I don't want to be remade into the image of culture, so I fight it. I force myself to read at times in order to mortify that pool that's within me. So not only has technology changed how we think, but even other cultural changes present uh, certain challenges to reading. For instance, the sheer pace of life has changed, right? 200 years ago, the sun went down and the workday was over. You know, you couldn't really, I don't know much about harvesting corn, but I would imagine it's kind of hard to do that once the sun goes down. Or there's certain jobs that it's hard to do whenever it's, uh, you know, uh, single digits outside or something like that, but that's generally no longer the case. Most of us, if we wanted to, we could work 24-7. We have lights, we have AC, we have heat. If nothing else, we always have uh, email. 
And that's not to mention the host of other things that are competing for our attention. There's sports, there's movies, there's TV, there's kids, there's hobbies, whatever it might be. In other words, for most of world history, reading was actually seen as a natural form of leisure for the literate. Today it's seen as a burden. Leisure for us is Netflix or Hulu or something like that. So I'm not ignorant. Whenever I say you should be reading the Bible and you should be reading a lot of the Bible, I'm not ignorant of the cost of that. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's necessary. One of the things that we'll see over and over this semester semester, is that discipline is not intended to be comfortable. In fact, the author of Hebrews, using discipline in a slightly different way, but the author of Hebrews says no discipline seems pleasant at the time. In the flesh, none of us wants to engage Scripture. And yet our job isn't to placate the flesh. Our job is to mortify the flesh. So there is a problem if you don't enjoy reading Scripture. I'm not saying you aren't a Christian. I am saying that there is something wrong there. There is some sort of spiritual disease, some sort of disorder, and you shouldn't just simply gloss over it. Act like it's not there. You should want to read Scripture. And if you don't, then you should at least want to want to read Scripture. Consider Psalm 119. It's a love poem to the, uh, the, the beauty of the Word of God. Psalm 119, 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all time. 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold, uh, uh, gold and silver pieces. 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, can you resonate with that? And if not, can you at least resonate with wanting to resonate with that? Not every Christian, if they're honest with themselves, and not every Christian is honest with themselves, but not every Christian can honestly say that they feel that way about Scripture, but every Christian should say, I want to feel that way. It's okay to be unhealthy. Everyone in this room is unhealthy in various ways, but it's not okay to be okay with that. It's not okay to be complacent with your apathy, to be complacent with your disobedience. There should be this holy discontentment that marks your life. Thankfully, I am confident that if you will just dedicate yourself to regularly reading Scripture, regularly confessing to God where you don't delight in doing so, regularly confessing to others where you don't delight in doing so, asking God to help you, the feelings will come in time. So with that in mind, let me give you a few helpful hints for reading the Bible. Number one, read every day. There's no command that says thou shalt read the Bible daily. But why would there be? There's no command also that says that you should breathe every day. There's no command that says you should eat or drink every day. And if man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, and yet we still say it's important to eat every day, then it stands to reason that we should be daily communing with God. Now let me clarify something. By reading... That could involve sitting down with a Bible in hand, or it could be listening uh, to audio in the car. You don't even have to be literate. Uh, And so don't let the the fact that you have some sort of learning disability or whatever it might be keep you from fulfilling this uh, responsibility and opportunity for you. That could be listening to audio in in the car on their way to to work or as you uh, go on a walk or something like that. For most of church history, in fact, most Christians weren't literate. For most of uh, church history, Christians have learned, they've meditated on Scripture, 
uh, and they've considered Scripture by hearing. So really, either is appropriate, but carve out time to do it each and every day. And related to this is the second tip, which is to follow some sort of plan. You've heard it said, those who uh, fail to plan, plan to fail, and that's generally true. You probably need some sort of plan if you're going to make this a habit. And remember, habits aren't the enemy of sanctification. That plan should include what, when, and where. As for what, you should consider what translation. I recommend the ESV. That's what we use here. But there are other good translations. The NASB is really good, although it tends to be a little wooden. The uh, Christian Standard CSB uh, is pretty good. Uh, and there are others that uh, you consider as well. We've done an uh, entire theological equipping class on translations that you could go listen to. Uh, but uh, you should include that. What translation am I going to read? Then once you have your translation, you need to know, okay, how am I actually going to tackle this? What am I going to read each day? I think some sort of Bible reading plan is helpful. There are tons of options available at like esv.org. They have a host of Bible reading plans that are good. Some are chronological. Some take you through the Bible once a year. I'm less concerned with what plan you choose than I am that you have some sort of plan. Maybe even create your own. Right? That's what I do. I read two chapters from the wisdom literature, two chapters from other Old Testament texts, and then two chapters from the New Testament. All right? I just kind of read straight through like that. So follow some sort of plan. Even if it's just one of your own creation, find something that works for you. By the way, in this plan, you should also include uh, not only reading, but also memorizing and studying, as we'll talk about. Also, I think in your plan, you should include not only what, but also the where and the when. So do you have a particular time? Do you have a particular place? All right? For me, it's right when I wake up. I get up. I grab a cup of coffee. I bought a coffee maker that already has it made for me whenever I wake up, so I don't have to wait. I recite some scripture memory. I pray, and then I open my Bible. That's my daily routine. If you don't have a particular plan... I think that the tyranny of the urgent will squeeze this out. That's partly why I decide that I'm going to read in the mornings rather than at night. The same reason that Monday is generally my main study day. I want to give my kind of first fruits to what's of primary importance so that that isn't pushed out by more uh, pressing, uh, urgent concerns or something like that. The third helpful hint is to give yourself grace. This is a big one. Don't be... Legalistic. That's killer for a lot of people. A lot of that is because people think of disciplines more as that summons to jury duty than they do as an invitation to Buckingham or whatever it might be. So they fall a couple of days behind and they feel this intense pressure. I have to, I have to catch up. And then they realize at some point they've fallen so far behind they can never actually catch up. So they just stop. And my encouragement to you is don't worry about that. Just keep reading. Again, there is no law that says you have to read the entire Bible in a year. What is important is that you just keep reading, not that you meet some sort of arbitrary goal. Number four, I'd say if this isn't already your practice, I'd encourage you to start small. Right? Don't decide, I'm going to read the entire Bible this month or something like that if you've never read it before. Maybe just start a chapter a day at first. I'd recommend starting in the, the New Testament if you've never done this before. Start in Matthew, read one chapter a day. You can read through the New Testament in 270 days in less than 10 minutes a day. And after you get into that rhythm, then you add another chapter, or maybe you mix in an Old Testament text as well. But just find something that works for you. Number five, count the cost. 
you want to grow in this area, it means that you will have to make sacrifices. You might have to sacrifice sleep or work or television or Twitter or time that you would normally listen to music, whatever it might be. I'm always encouraged by the example of Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. After his death, his children wrote this. It was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study. But he knew that it was vital. Well do the writers, that's his kids, remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and wheelbarrow to the poorest of inns at night. Often with only one large room for laborers and travelers alike, they would screen off a corner for their father and another for themselves with curtains of some sort. And then after sleep at last had brought a measure of quiet, they would hear a match struck and see the flicker of candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible in two volumes always at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer, the time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. That flicker of candlelight has meant more to them than all they've read or heard on secret prayer. It meant reality, not just uh, not preaching but practice. Now, if you read that and you think that's legalistic, why would you get up at 2 in the morning? I don't think you've grasped what we've been talking about all morning. Why did Hudson Taylor, why have thousands of other saints taken such pains to hear from God? Not because they thought, I have to do so, but because they wanted to do so. They thirsted, they hungered for God. Reading the Bible wasn't just this goal, this arbitrary sort of discipline that they had. Seeing and savoring God was the goal, but reading Scripture was the means, the best means of accomplishing that. Speaking of goals, look at number six. Remind yourself of the goal. The goal of reading and the goal of reading every day isn't to be a good Christian. The goal isn't to just find some daily application for your own life. It certainly isn't to earn God's favor or love. It's to know him. It's to commune with him. If your flesh can't convince you to not read scripture, then it will divert its energy. It will divert its attention to persuading you to read it with the wrong end in sight. The end of legalism or moralism or whatever. So when that happens, when motivation falters, then confess, repent, and just keep reading. And speaking of just keeping on reading, number seven is persevere. Bear in mind, sanctification is slow and progressive. It's like growing older. You look in the mirror each day and you don't look any older. And yet if you look back 20 years, you see a difference. That's like reading scripture. Not every day is going to be earth-shattering, but slowly and surely you're going to grow if you press forward. Don't give up. Don't give in, just keep reading. The answers will come in time. Sanctification will come in time. Transformation will come in time. That's all I have to say for now about reading Scripture. Again, we'll talk about studying in a couple of weeks. But for now, let's talk about memorization. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read all the following passages. We've already read these, but notice that they're all about meditating on Scripture. The Hebrew word... Often translated meditate is interesting. It's used of the cooing of a dove or the growling of a lion. It's used to refer to moans and to groans and to muttering. The author is conveying within these texts the image of one who is quietly and consistently speaking God's word to him or herself in hushed tones. So meditation is another one of these invitations to flourishing, an invitation to joy, a spiritual discipline 
I commend to you for your sanctification and edification. And I know of no better way uh, to practically meditate on Scripture than memorizing Scripture. When it comes to memorizing Scripture, there's really two main types. The first is some sort of a topical memory verse of the day. You might have done this in Awana or Desiring God has a helpful resource called Fighter Verses that help with this type of memorization. That's probably what most of us are most familiar with when I say scripture memorization. You probably think of this first type, which is you memorize one particular verse on a particular topic. Let's say lust. And then you memorize another verse another day on contentment. Or you might memorize the Roman road for the sake of evangelism or something. And that's one kind of memorization. But there's another form of memorization that involves uh, memorizing extended portions of Scripture. My first decade or so of being a Christian, I occasionally did the first form. But then 12 or so years ago, I began to try to work through extended chunks of Scripture. Entire chapters, even books of the Bible. I think both of those practices are really good. They're really encouraging. I would never discourage you from doing either of them. But I'm going to mostly talk about the second form of memorization today. I've actually found that to be most helpful in my own life. So I commend it to you for a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons that I would encourage you to try to memorize extended chunks of Scripture. The first reason is for the same reason that I would recommend line-by-line preaching. That's why we do that here at Parkway. Doing so keeps you from skipping over things that you wouldn't normally think about. Right? So maybe you memorize a bunch of verses on lust, but maybe you don't really want to memorize anything on greed because you, deep down you know that's a problem, and I don't want to confront that problem. So it forces you to not skip over things. When you memorize extended chunks, you aren't just picking and choosing You're kind of forced to take God at his word and to memorize and to think about whatever is there. The second reason I would encourage you to memorize extended chunks is because of context. A lot of us have probably memorized something like the prayer of Jabez or Jeremiah 29.11 or 2 Chronicles, what is it, 7.14 or something like that. But we memorized it in a way that would cause us to misunderstand it and thus actually misapply it. So my question is, what good is it to memorize a misunderstood and misapplied promise? But by memorizing extended sections of Scripture, we're actually much better prepared to understand the context and thus actually understand the passage. So besides reading, studying Scripture, and prayer, no other spiritual discipline has been more transformative for me than memorizing Scripture. I've told this story uh, before, but I'll mention it again. In 2009... I was tasked to head up some pastor training for a a church partnership in South Sudan, although actually it was still just unified Sudan at that point. But to get into into the particular city that we had to go to called Ye, South Sudan, we had to take this small 12-passenger twin-engine plane from Uganda uh, into Ye, South Sudan. You have to fly over the Ugandan jungle. And that plane was a bit scary, right? I don't know that they have all of the rules and regulations that we have here. And I'm not typically afraid of flying, but for whatever reason, on that first trip, my mind just wouldn't stop imagining all of these worst-case scenarios. What if we crash? What if we crash and are captured by African you know, warlords? This was the time when uh, Joseph Kony was in the area. What if we crash into lion country? What if we crash into the Nile River and we get eaten by crocodiles? I'm scared of lizards. 
Think about a crocodile. That's a huge lizard, right? And in that moment, for whatever reason, I was so anxious. I couldn't read. I couldn't talk to my buddies who were sitting next to me. But I happened to be memorizing Romans 8 at the time. So I put my head between my legs, perfect crash position. And I just started reciting Romans 8 over and over again. And as I did, I suddenly began to think about this strange juxtaposition that was happening. This strange juxtaposition of the words of Romans 8 that I was saying, I was muttering, I was meditating on, and the thoughts that I was thinking and the feelings that I was feeling. I was saying with my mouth that God hasn't given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear while I was afraid. I was saying I've been adopted as a son, but I didn't feel like I had a good father. I was saying all things work together for good, but I was feeling like this plane was going to fall apart and me with it, and that wouldn't be good. I wasn't feeling like God was utterly sovereign in that moment. And then I got to the end and that rapturous list of things that won't separate us from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation including death. And suddenly, with that realization of that juxtaposition, of that contrast, I felt this calmness. I felt this peace. My fear disappeared. I'm not saying that if you'll memorize Scripture, you won't sin anymore, you won't be tempted anymore, you won't be anxious anymore. But at least in this one particular instance, it's like a 180-degree change. It's like Christ's words in John 8. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what I felt. That promise came alive in that moment to mortify that particular sin in that moment. And I've actually not struggled with that. I've flown back to Africa a half dozen times since then and have never felt that fear. That's a testimony, my personal testimony, of the benefits of Scripture memorization. But let me give you a host of reasons for you to consider starting this discipline if you don't do it already. Number one, by the way, a lot of these would apply to uh, either, either way, either form of Scripture memorization, the individual verse or the larger section. Number one, it helps you to apply the numerous texts that command you to study and meditate on the Word of God, or as Colossians say, to let the Word dwell in you richly. When I first came to Parkway, all of our members used to have name tags. Raise your hand if you remember that. All right, handful of you. Well, the rest of the staff and I, we thought we needed to get rid of name tags. All right? We thought that's a change that we needed to make in the culture here. So we suggested it to the elders. And when I suggested it, one of the, uh, the former elders, no longer here, he said that the name tags help us to know our members. To which I replied, I think the opposite is actually true. Name tags are actually a crutch that actually prevent you from knowing a member's name. You don't have to know their name. If you actually know someone, you don't need a name tag, right? Do you wear a name tag at home? No, why not? Because everyone at your home knows you, right? What does that have to do with memorizing Scripture? Well, everyone in this room has access to a Bible, whether it's a printed copy or on an app or something like that. But maybe, just maybe, the ubiquity, the prevalence of Bibles actually serves to make us less acquainted with them. Maybe the Bible we carry in our phones is actually a crutch that keeps us from carrying it in our hearts and minds. It's kind of like the effect of technology today. I, I used to know dozens of phone numbers. Do you remember back in the day where you used to know your grandparents' phone numbers and your aunts and uncles, and you had to memorize phone numbers, right? And now I know about three, all right? 
I know mine, I know Casey's, I think I could get my mom's, and that's about it, all right? I have an iPhone, it remembers it for me. I don't need to know the number of Hutchins Barbecue. I look it up, I press a button. All right? And I think that's how a lot of people kind of treat the Bible. We have it with us in our hands, so we don't really hide it in our hearts and in our minds. A second benefit of memorizing Scripture is that it enables you to identify insights. It's kind of the difference between swallowing some food versus actually chewing it. When you chew it, all the various tastes are released. That's what memorization does. It forces you to slow down and taste and see that the Lord is good. Number three, it helps you to fight sin. I just looked at the clock and realized we're not going to have time for questions. I genuinely apologize. Please email me. I got carried away. Uh, it helps you to fight sin, all right? Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Think of Christ when he's tempted. What does he do? He quotes scripture. He probably isn't carrying the entire Old Testament in scrolls at the time. He also doesn't tell Satan, you know what, hang on. Let me uh, look something up, see if I should actually bow down to you. I'm not sure. All right? Scripture dwells within him. Why? Because he's dwelt upon it for years. Not just because he's the son of God, but because he's the perfect, uh, in, uh, the, the, the perfect embodiment of the spirit-empowered man. He's dwelt upon Scripture for years, and so it dwells within him, and so out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. As John Piper says, memorizing Scripture makes God's word more readily accessible for overcoming temptation to sin because God's warnings and promises are the way we conquer the deceitful promises of sin. Fourth benefit, it helps you to comfort and counsel others. Oftentimes when you're with someone with some sort of pressing spiritual need, you might not have a Bible with you. You might not have the option of opening your Bible and searching for some helpful thought, but by memorizing it, you have it with you always. So memorization isn't only about your own discipleship, but also it helps you in discipling others. It's a form of meditation, which is a form of worship. It's useful not only for your own discipleship, but also helping to disciple others. So with that in mind, how do you do it? Again, I, I, I just want to mention there are two different approaches to Scripture memory. Uh, you choose rele- relevant portions of Scripture, cover a host of topics. You begin to memorize those individual verses. If you want to do that, go for it. I never discourage you from doing that. But I'm, I'm going to focus on strategic, long-term memorization of extended passages, entire chapters or even books of the Bible. All right? uh, and it's not as impossible as you might think. All right? Fifteen years ago, if you'd have told me I'd memorize entire books of the Bible, I'd have thought, you're crazy. Absolutely crazy. I heard, I remember being in seminary and hearing that someone had done that, memorized a book of the Bible, and I thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I literally couldn't imagine that. Now, I don't think it's easy. That's why it's called a discipline. But I think this method here is efficient, effective, And uh, it might not make it easy, but it will make what might seem impossible actually possible. Here's the method. And then we'll talk about helpful hints and then we'll be done. A method. Number one, decide which chapter or book or whatever it might be that you want to memorize. If you don't have a good idea, I would recommend you start with Romans 8 or maybe the Sermon on the Mount. 
get pre uh, prepared for us preaching Matthew next year. Number two, you read verse one a few times. So Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You read that, and you read it, and you read it, and you read it again. And then you close your eyes, step three, and you attempt to recite the verse from memory. There is therefore now no condemnation for those. And then you forget where you are, and you look, you open your eyes. Ah, those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you go back, and you close your eyes again, and you do it again. And when you can recite it perfectly from memory a few times in a row without looking at the text, you say a quick prayer. Ask the Lord to seal that in your heart and in your mind. Close your Bible and you go on with the day. All right. The next day, you recite verse 1 from memory. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you start with verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You do the same method as you did day 1 on day 2. And the next day, you recite verses 1 through 2 from memory. Then you start verse 3 and that's it. That's the method. Now let me give you a few practical tips, helpful hints toward memorization. Number one, concentrate on each and every word as you're attempting to memorize them. Each word is important. Not each word actually corresponds to a relevant Greek or Hebrew term, but each word is important. So think about how that word fits into the flow of the passage. Think about its force within the verse. Every word is important or else it wouldn't be in there. So concentrate on each and every word. Number two, pray through the verse once you have it memorized. I think that's important. Number three, say the verse out loud throughout the day. In other words, meditate on it, murmur on it, between phone calls in the shower, walking to the car, etc. Number four, have some sort of rhythm or have a plan. For instance, I typically try to do five verses a week on average. Right, That gives me two days to recall kind of shore up on something. And then once I finish a chapter or once I finish a book or whatever it might be, then I spend the next couple of months not doing anything new and just doing that at least once a week. Number five, vary your cadence from day to day. Your, your brains have a way of remembering sounds without really considering the words. And so any sort of variation that you can do will actually help you to think about the words. For instance, you know, the first time you can say, there is therefore... Now no condemnation. And the next time you say, there is therefore now no condemnation. Kind of change up the, uh, the, uh, the intonation and so forth. Number six, don't be legalistic. Don't condemn yourself. If you have to move more slowly than I recommend, if it takes you a week or a month to do one verse. On the other hand, don't exalt yourself if you can somehow memorize the entire book of Romans in three hours or something. Number seven, find what works for you. In the end, the goal isn't to memorize Romans. The goal is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Each person is different, so experiment. Find what's best for you that will actually help you fulfill that charge. That is the command. You have to find some way. It doesn't have to be memorizing entire books of the Bible or something. You have to find some way, though, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Number eight, just keep going. There's often a buffering that takes place, and that's okay. In other words, if you're on verse 15, you're learning verse 15 today, but you realize everything from verse 12, 13, and 14, that's fuzzy, that's okay. I'd encourage you to keep going. Memorize verse 16 tomorrow. What you'll probably find is verse 12 will now be solid, and 13, 14, 15 will be a little bit hazy. There will always be this buffering, and that's okay. Just keep uh, moving. And then nine, have someone help you. Maybe someone who's memorizing with you. Not only will that 
provide a degree of accountability to keep you on track, but it also provides a helpful corrective. For example, if you're reciting verse, uh, Romans 8 from memory and you somehow just leave out verse 10, and then you do that for a number of days in a row, that's going to kind of uh, solidify and form in your mind. But if you then recite that to someone else, they will be able to hear that and they can lovingly help you, correct you. So to conclude, I would encourage you to find a daily rhythm in your life whereby you can not only read but also study and memorize Scripture. You don't have to do all three of those every day, but there should be some sort of regular rhythm. As Spurgeon says, visit many good books but live in the Bible. Let's pray. Again, I apologize for running out of time. Father, thank you for your word. I confess that it is a precious gift, and yet in my flesh, I do not always receive it as such. And I'm sure that everyone in this room can resonate to some degree with that reality. And so I pray that you would help us to, as as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that we would be people who are marked by wholeness, that our uh, external actions would align with our internal desires. And so I pray that you'd help us, help us to delight in your word and to read your word and to discipline ourselves for the sake of, uh, of not only our holiness, but also the opportunity for us to help make disciples of others. So I pray that you give us a spiritual taste, that we might taste and see that you are good and that your word is good. We pray these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts. You've given us your son. You've given us your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.